Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. from Revelation 6, 12 to the end of chapter 7. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled back, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to them, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Good morning. Please be seated. Today, we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, We are now in chapter 7, the 144,000, perhaps one of the most well-known passages. Where we last left off, the seals were being opened, and God's judgment was pouring out over all the earth. It's very easy for us to forget what it is that we are reading, what we are looking at, when we look at terrible visions and horrifying things like that. It's very easy to forget that what we are reading is a vision of comfort to God's people who are experiencing tribulation in the times that they're living. The Apostle John, at the very beginning of chapter 1, said he identified with them as being one in the tribulation of the kingdom and of the patient endurance What this is, this vision, is a clarion call to God's people to be patient, to patiently endure the tribulation that we are facing right now. So the New Testament, and even up to now into the Revelation, is really speaking to the what now, 
the, the Old Testament was saying the Messiah is coming. He's coming. And now the New Testament, he's here. Now what? What does that mean? And then Christ leaves. And then tribulation is occurring. And, and the people in the church are seeing their family members killed and martyred and, and murdered. And the question then is, where's Jesus? What's happening? When's he going to return? The perspective that we often see when we're looking at Revelation is because we hear that it's apocalyptic literature, what comes to our mind is the message of Revelation is the end is nigh. But in reality, the message of Revelation is, well, what if it isn't? What if the end actually isn't nigh? And what does that mean for us who are now living in tribulation? The answer to that question is patiently endure. But listen, if you're going to tell me, if I'm facing tribulation, if my friends are being martyred, don't tell me about how great heaven is or how bad hell is. Show me. Paint me a picture. Show me a movie about how glorious Jesus is, about why I should patiently endure. And that's what this is. This is a picture of God's glorious victory and why you can patiently endure that God keeps his promises. Now, one of the reasons we face a lot of resistance, at least in our context, to the idea that this would be the tribulation that we're living in right now, uh, because the situation that you or I are in doesn't seem that bad. You know, I mean, we, we read about other countries that are being persecuted on a day-to-day basis, but how can this be the tribulation when things are this good? And I'll point this out. Persecution is typically the thing that you're thinking of when you think of tribulation. Like that's the one thing that's involved in tribulation. But persecution is not the only arrow in Satan's quiver when it comes to persecuting and and creating tribulation for his people. That might be his most favorite, but it's also probably his least effective. As we read in Revelation, there's more than just persecution. There's also seduction and deception. Satan is giving us ways that would seduce us away from Christ. Our affections are taken away from Christ. Or or otherwise deception. You know, creating false gospels as opposed to the true gospel. Satan no longer has the authority to blind our eyes from the gospel, but he can create new ones. And boy, does he. So the situation that we are in here, in our current context, are we facing a lot of persecution? No, not necessarily. But are we facing seduction and deception? Absolutely. On a day-to-day basis. Go on your phone for five minutes and tell me that we're not living in a world of seduction and deception. This is the world that we are living in that is fighting for our affections. But what do we do during this time? We patiently endure and we have faith that God's promises are true. And so the pictures that are being written in Revelation are examples throughout redemptive history of how God's promises are being made true. And they're intended to be very vivid. They're vivid pictures intended to grab you by the shoulders and say, this is important. I know what you're going through is bad, but endure. Heaven is amazing. God is glorious. Endure. But these images are not like what we see in the rest of of the New Testament. This is a very specific type of literary genre called apocalyptic literature. And I know we've already done a little bit of a flyover of what apocalyptic literature is, um, but but I'll just give a, a brief explanation. It's not the same thing as a gospel narrative. It's not the same thing as a historical account. An apocalyptic vision is a vision that is given by God to illustrate a point or a story or a narrative. And it requires a few things of the reader. And it's not like the other types of things that we read. What is required is that you understand what is being shown. That you understand the genre that is being used. So Revelation is not the only place where apocalyptic literature is used. It's used quite a bit in the Old Testament as well. But here are the hallmarks of apocalyptic literature. Number one, they are word pictures. The intent here is that it is largely symbolic. The image that you see are symbolizing a greater reality. It is not intended to be taken literally. 
So sometimes the reason why we try to, well, we actually don't study Revelation very much is because we get confused by it, or sometimes we're just scared away from it. And we get really fine and close into the details. But if Revelation is a picture, it's an Impressionist painting. So getting too close to it would be like examining an Impressionist painting with a magnifying glass and saying, all I see are dots and strokes. It doesn't make sense. I'm not really seeing what this means. There's a green dot. I wonder what that means. No, no, no. What you need to do is take a few steps back and look at the big picture of all of God's Word. Oh, oh, it's not just dots. It's not just strokes. God's plan has been taking forth and unfurling throughout the beginning of time. He had a plan this whole time. He had a plan of redemption this whole time, and it's beautiful. Or likewise, if you get a little bit too close, it's, uh, if you're not a fan of art, I'll use another example. It's like sitting in the front row of an IMAX theater, and you have to crane your neck way back, and you're like, ah, it's scary. No, 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 no. Take a few steps back. Go, go to row 12, right in the middle. It's not scary. It's, ah, it's good. It's taken in the entire context of the message, and you see that it's strung all the way through. And I'm not saying when I say the entire context, I don't mean Revelation, the entire book of Revelation. I mean the entire book from Genesis through Revelation. God has a plan that he's unfurling since the beginning of time, and his promises are true, and that's why you know that you can trust him. And so this is a book and a vision of hope to people who are experiencing tribulation. And there's a few things you need to know. Once again, these images are considered symbolic. They're not to be taken literal. Also, numbers. The way that numbers are used in apocalyptic literature is not the way that we would typically use them. We use them quantitatively. In apocalyptic literature, numbers are used qualitatively. They are meant to describe the nature of something, not the amount of something, but its qualities. Uh, I'll use a a few quick uh, examples. There are a few numbers that will be used over and over again, and this is particularly true of chapter 7. The number 3, typically used to uh, exemplify God, the Trinity. Uh, The number 4 is often used to symbolize creation. Uh, There's there's either the number 4 or sets of 4, four things that are happening. It's either happening to creation or it's referring to mankind. Um, There's four living creatures, people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. The number seven, you're going to see that used a lot. That's about perfection. That is God's number. It can refer to the perfect amount of something. It can refer to the perfect nature of God. It's, the, the, the number seven is referring to perfection. Uh, the number ten is often used as a number of completion, a complete amount of something. Either a list of ten or the number ten is used or a combination of ten, like a thousand, ten times ten times ten a great multitude, a great amount of things, and a full and complete amount of things. The number 12, also frequently used throughout Scripture and especially in apocalyptic literature, referring to God's people. And this is used throughout Scripture, 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, uh, the 24 elders in Revelation, referring to from the Old and the New Testament. And a thousand, these numbers can be mixed. It's also important, and this is required of the reader to understand, that the visions that you see are not necessarily linear or chronological. It's quite possible that what you read in chapter 20 does not necessarily happen after chapter 19. And likewise, throughout this, there are cycles, there are flashbacks, there are multiple views of what is happening. And, and that is exactly some of the hallmarks of what we see in chapter 7. Um, if, if you're not familiar with the rules of this genre of literature, you're likely to be lost, and you're likely to get it wrong. So let's, let's step into it. Having known that and having it approached it that way, let's take a look. And if you have not done so, uh, open up your, your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. And we're going to dig into, well, what is going on here? And, and what message uh, is being laid out for us today? Where we last left off, a question was asked. So the sixth seal had been broken, and, and judgment is pouring out. The, the world is falling apart. Mountains are falling, and people are trying to run away from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, there's an interesting word picture for you, the wrath of the Lamb. And, and the question that is asked, and this is actually asked by an unbeliever, 
If, if this is God's judgment, who can stand? And it's at that point, if this is a movie where the whole scene pauses, there's a record scratch, and the narrator is saying, that is a good question. Who can stand? Let me show you something. And so what happens in chapter 7 is not chronologically after chapter 6. It can't be. Because the world's already ending. And what we're seeing is, who is God going to protect from all of these judgments? We, we see here that the angels are tasked from protecting the earth from being destroyed or from the winds of heaven being blown over. But if you look at chapter 6, the world is already falling apart. Uh, there's great and cataclysmic things that are happening to the earth. And so what we see here is a, a very common uh, element that you might see in movies. It's called a flashback. And we're going to say, okay, the question was asked, who can stand? And believers are reading this saying, this is terrible judgment that's being poured out. How are Christians supposed to survive this great judgment? I am so glad you asked. Let me show you something, and let's go back to the very beginning. And he uses a reference from Zechariah chapter 6. He says, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. So that number four keeps happening. And what do we know about the number four? It's about creation. It's about something that's happening onto the earth. Um, So Zechariah uh, chapter 6, it's also about God's judgment that is coming uh, to the earth. I'll, I'll read that real quick. It says, again, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, four chariots come out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. So this should be triggering some reminders from chapter 6, the four horsemen. And then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out of the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So this is drawing heavily from the Old Testament. And that is another hallmark of uh, apocalyptic literature. It is hailing directly from the Old Testament. Any images that you're not quite sure what's going on, chances are that's being drawn directly from the Old Testament. It almost takes an Old Testament scholar to try to understand New Testament visions. But uh, there's, there's also a few more things going on here. Uh, verse 2 of, of chapter 7, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, so the people who have this seal are going to be protected from God's wrath and God's judgment. What is this seal? This seal is important. You're going to want the seal. And, And fortunately, we are in a chapter where the meaning of the text might seem hidden is actually revealed to us. Um, in, in, in many places. Turn with, with me, if you will, real quickly to Revelation chapter 14. Because in Revelation chapter 14, we get a different image of the same group of people. And we're going to learn a little bit more about what this seal is and who this, this mysterious 144,000 people are. Now, let me set the stage. Revelation chapter 14 follows Revelation 13. Revelation 13, there are two beasts that are rising up against God's people. There's the beast of the land and the beast of the sea. And the beast of the sea is, is unleashing all sorts of attacks upon God's people. There's the mark of the beast. There's the 666. And he's, he's not allowing God's people to buy or sell things. And these beasts are rising up against God's people. And then in chapter 14... Is, is, is a vision, but it's, it's following that exact same idea. And, and on chapter 14, they're standing on Mount Zion in defiance of the beast and everything he stands for is the lamb and his 144,000. It's super dramatic. And it doesn't say so in the text, but for cinematic effect, there's lightning and thunder. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's a direct imagery of war that God's people are standing against the beast and the beast will be defeated. So they are positioning themselves for war, but the war that they are about to engage in is not a physical battle. The war that they are engaging in is one of worship. They are worshiping the Lamb. Why? Because the Lamb has already overcome. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 14, 1 through 5. We're going to learn about the seal. 
Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Aha! So, the people that are sealed by God have the name of God written on their foreheads. Literally? No, not literally. But we see that what is the seal that is given? It's Jesus. It's the work of Jesus. And fortunately for us, uh, we have a lot of different usage of this particular term, the seal. We're going to get back to Revelation chapter 14. But where else have we seen this idea of the seal? All throughout the New Testament. And I think what we can say what the seal is, is quite simply, it is the Holy Spirit that seals believers. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Or, or chapter 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, also in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about that. So I, I think what we can say what the seal is, it's the name of God. It's God's people, people that are identified by God because they have the Spirit. And so that's why I think there's, this, there's the seal of God, and then there's the other side, which is the mark of the beast. And we've already talked a little bit about the mark of the beast, but that is just, the mark of the beast is just a perverse copy of the seal of the Spirit. That is just something that Satan is doing to mark his people. And let, let me be clear, that it's not a physical thing that you receive. It's about identification. You are either in Christ or you are in Satan. There's no in-between. There's, there's no middle road. You either have the, the seal of the Spirit or the mark of the beast. You're either God's or you're Satan's. And that's how it, that, the people of God are identified. They have the Spirit. Let's learn a little bit more about this 144,000. So they had the name of, written on their foreheads in verse 1. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So from there we learn quite a bit about the 144,000 who are sealed. And, and this, this list here is, is going through what, what are the 144,000 uh, from what it says from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So I want you to keep this imagery from chapter 14 in your head, this, this, this description. And if you want, keep your finger uh, in, in that page where Revelation 14 is, because we're going to refer back to that particular description of the 144,000. So there's this list. And let's take a look at this. Now, the astute among you, if you're looking at this list, will notice this is not like any list that exists in Scripture before it. It says that it's um, a list of the sons of every, every tribe of the sons of Israel. And typically we'll have a list of the 12 tribes of Israel or we'll have a list of the sons of Israel, but they're usually not mixed. And, and there's some 20 plus lists of the 12 tribes of Israel that are in the, the Scriptures, but none of which... Um, is one like this ever exist? Um, this is not in birth order. It's not in geographic order. It doesn't appear to be in any particular logical order that we've seen before. Something different is going on here. And, and we could go into every single detail here, but that might be getting a little too close. But there's a few things I want to point out here. The very first one on this list is Judah. And this shouldn't be a surprise. We've already been introduced to Jesus being the Lion of Judah. And so it's not a surprise that Judah would be listed here first. Whatever group this is, this 144,000, Christ is the head of it. Christ is the head of this particular group. 
And then you have Reuben next. And what follows after that is a list of the outcasts. And this is strange. This, these are the sons of the concubines. Now, they were part of the tribes, but, but it's interesting that they would put them first. Like uh, Manasseh is on this list. Manasseh is Joseph's son from the Egyptian concubine. She, the, the Egyptian mother there was a priestess of Egypt. Manasseh, by bloodline, is largely a Gentile, and yet he's included in here. But he had a twin brother, Ephraim, who is not in this list. That's strange. Uh, Likewise, uh, you have Joseph, who is uh, Manasseh's father. So if this was a list of tribes, you would might expect to see Manasseh, but not necessarily Joseph. Uh, And likewise, if it was sons, you'd see uh, Joseph, uh, but not necessarily Manasseh. Um, Also, what's interesting that I see here is the tribe of Levi is included in here. Now, the tribe of Levi is almost never included in a list of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because Levi is not amongst the, they're not recipients of the promise of land promise. You normally wouldn't include them in a list like this, and yet here they are, a recipients of the promise. The tribe of Dan is gone entirely. You, you never see Dan missing from a list of the tribes, but we do know that, that Dan was, uh, was idolatrous. He did not believe in the promises of God. And so interestingly, though he is ethnically Israel, he is not on this list. So what is going on here? What, what are these people? What does this represent? And I don't need to tell you, and I'm sure this wouldn't come as any surprise, there are many views as to what this 144,000 are. And generally it falls into two different categories. There's the literal futurist view, and then there's the symbolic um, idealist view about what this is. And I'm not going to go into great detail about all of them, but I'm just going to explain what it represents and why I think it means that. I am firmly convinced that this list is a list of the entire church throughout the tribulation. That might sound a little odd, but I'm going to explain why I believe that. And there are three main reasons why I believe that. And when I say I believe that, I'm not alone. I didn't make this up. This isn't my view. Uh, This is the view of of many. And again, um, controversial? Perhaps. There are multiple different views. But let me go into why. There are three reasons. There's the description, there's the number, and then there's the context of why I think this is speaking about God's people. Number one, the description. Those that are sealed by Christ. It is referring to the work of Christ. It is referring to the work of the Spirit. Now, of course, that's not to say that the work of the Spirit cannot take place upon uh, 12,000 tribes. We're talking about the description here of those that are servants, servants of God. And the word servants is almost never used apart from anything of the entirety of the church. There's also a familiar promise here. Back in chapter 3, 4, when we're talking about the churches, uh, the letters to the seven churches, this exact same promise was given to the church in Philadelphia. To the one that overcomes, I will mark my name on his forehead. So we're seeing that this mark that is being given to this particular group is given to Jews. It's also given to a church of Gentiles. And it's being opened up to this group. What's also interesting, though, is when you consider the description in chapter 14, and we're talking about a group of people that are going to be protected from God's wrath. That's the point. The question is, who can stand? Who is going to be protected and sealed from the wrath of God? Who is going to survive that? God's people will. But if we're looking at it from a literalist perspective, there's uh, a couple of interesting things going on. Uh, As we look at from Revelation chapter 14, what do we see about the details about this group? Well, if we're taking it literally, what we would see is it would have to be, well, a literal group of 144,000, can be, um, but it would be virgin male Jews who have never lied and are blameless. And pretty quickly, the question goes from, well, why are only 144,000 protected from God's wrath to, are there any of those? And of course, to be fair, even those that approach this uh, from a littler sense will take this passion and say, okay, probably this is symbolic for God's salvation, for, for people that are redeemed by God. But I think what we're looking at here is an imagery of war, right? And so in the Old Testament... Uh, people would prepare themselves for war. Um, they, would, they would abstain from sex for a little while, and they would be blameless for a little while. And, 
And the imagery that we then have in chapter 7 is, is accounting. It's like an Old Testament census. And they did this quite a bit in the Old Testament, whereas getting the count for war. Who are my tribes that are available for war? And, and uh, they did this multiple times, Numbers 1-3, Numbers 1-18, 20, chapter 26, 1 Chronicles 27, where it's getting a list, a count of who are my people, who is ready for war, and, and how are we going to proceed? So, so there's this description that I think um, aligns very well with the people of God, but that's, that's not the primary reason why I believe this. Another reason why is the numbers. The numbers is an oddly specific thing, don't you think? 144,000. Why 144,000? Well, as we noted, from the way that numbers are presented in apocalyptic literature, there's a very important number that's being used here. Twelve. Twelve representing the, the people of God. And so the number 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000, meaning the entirety of God's people from the Old Testament and the New Testament and a great significant amount. Is it limited to 144,000 that are going to be redeemed by the Lamb? No. It's going to be a great amount of Jews, a great amount of Gentiles, and a great large multitude of amount. This is not the only place, by the way, that these numbers are used this way. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, real quickly, if you can, to Revelation uh, chapter 21. When it's describing the new Jerusalem that's coming down from heaven. And there's numbers that are being used to describe the enormity of the new Jerusalem. So this is Revelation chapter 21, verses 12 through 16 in its description. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels. And on the gates the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And on the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. By the way, the 12 apostles of the Lamb, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, that's the group that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 7. So verse 15, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal, and he measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurements. Now, now wait a minute. These are really familiar numbers, right? And the point of this description of the New Jerusalem is not to say that the, the city is 1,400 miles square. It's the enormity of the city that is sufficient for the entirety of God's people. Is it large? Oh, yes, very large, very, very large. But the qualitative nature of it is sufficient for the entirety of God's people. Likewise, this number is is intended to be a symbolic number towards the enormity of God's people that are going to be redeemed through the Great Tribulation. But the main reason, let me get to the point, the main reason that I believe that this is representative of the entirety of God's people through the Great Tribulation is because that's what the Scripture says that it means. And you might be thinking, you you could have just skipped to that, right? Isn't that the main reason? Um, There is a pattern here, and this is really important to understand in Revelation, of hearing and seeing. When John hears a reality, but then sees what it is. He hears the name that, there's, that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, but when he sees, he sees the Lamb. So which is it? Is, is Jesus a Lion or is Jesus a Lamb? Yes, both. And we see this pattern again in chapter 7. He sees the four angels, and he sees what they're doing. But then he hears this list of 144,000. And when he opens his eyes, he is told immediately what this group is. Verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. He is seeing a group without count. Is it 144,000? No. It's a multitude that no one could count, that no one could number. Was it just Israelites? 
No, it is from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, list of four, coming from the earth. And I need to impress upon you how important this vision would have been to the original recipients, how important this number is and what this vision means to John. Think about this from John's perspective for a moment. Where is he? He's on Patmos. He's in exile. He's amongst the last of the living apostles. Um, the Jerusalem is already destroyed. The world is crashing around them. And from John's perspective, he's not sure where this thing is going, this, this, this whole Christianity thing. They had a good run with the apostles, but he's the last of them. Yes, there's some churches out there, but he's writing to, to seven churches, and frankly, half of them are kind of knuckleheads. You know, and so, so the idea that this thing would keep going, he probably had no idea. And he was probably thinking, this is it. This is the end. This, this is the end of Christianity as we know it. So I guess this is all that there's going to be. His world is very narrow. And this vision that God gives him says, that's not the case, John. That's not the case. This whole thing, God's promises are larger than you can even imagine. And you need to understand what he would have seen here the entirety of God's people through this time. What he would have seen here is a multitude. He certainly wasn't able to count them. This would have been a multitude larger than the entire population of the earth at that time. He would have seen people from languages and nations that they had no idea about. These weren't people from just Asia Minor or from Palestine. It was from everywhere. And an encouragement to John was, this message will stand. The mission of the church will not fail because God will not let it. Be encouraged, John. This is going to go out to all people groups. The amount of people that are going to be redeemed by the Lamb is greater than you can ever imagine. So the multitude of encouragement that comes from a vision like that cannot even be fathomed. And that gives us encouragement that the church will not fail. God's promises are true. And we can know that we will be protected from God's wrath. Why? Because God is successful. God keeps his promises. And God will not fail. Now, I know what you're thinking. Two things. Is this guy done yet? No. But number two. But Mike, if this group really is representing the church entirely, why not just say that? right? Wouldn't that be simpler to just say it's the church? I mean, why bring up ethnic Israel at all if if it's talking about the entire group? I'll tell you why. Old Testament promises being fulfilled. God keeps his promises. And so if you are facing trials and tribulations, he is pointing you to Old Testament promises to remember the story. Remember that God keeps his promises. And I'm going to show you how. I'm going to show you why. And to look at the fulfillment of this promise, we're not going to go to the end of the book. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is the Lord saying to Abraham, this is him making a promise. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The blessing was not just to Abraham. The blessing was not just to his offspring. It was to the whole world that all nations would be blessed. And this promise was repeated again and again and again to Abram, to Isaac, to Sarah. Uh, Genesis 17, 4, behold, this is to Isaac, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And so here in Revelation 7, this is what we see. He sees not only those from the tribes of Israel, but the blessing of the entire world coming through Israel. God's promises to Abraham are becoming true. The Apostle Paul spent a very significant amount of time, effort, and ink convincing his people and those that would listen the new reality of the promises that are in Christ. 
that it is not only for Israel, but Christ is also for the Gentiles. And they are now recipients of the promise. It's a big topic, which is, is broader for another day, but I'll go into a few points that he makes. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who had made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And he clarifies later on in chapter 3, verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through what? Faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. God's people are identified not by an ethnicity, not by a bloodline, but by faith that God's promises are true. He goes on later at the end of chapter 6, he even calls the church the Israel of God. A church that it consists of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, Paul pounded the table a lot about this subject. And there was even a lot of pushback about that subject. And, and really, even in, in chapter 9, was a, uh, Romans chapter 9 through 11, he wrote as a reaction to the criticism that he was being received. And the criticism that he was received about this argument that he was making is that he was making Gentiles replacements for Israel. That it is now the Gentiles that are replacing the promises that, the, that were given to the people of God in the Old Testament. And... His response to that is, nothing could be further from the truth. And, and, and Romans 9 through 11 is a very long talk, and, and there's a lot that's going on there. But what he says, the argument that it begins with, well, no, God's promises are true, and God's promises have not failed. Not all who descended from Israel are Israel, but not the children of the flesh, but as children of the promise that are children of God. What is the promise? It is faith that God will deliver his people. There were people all throughout the Old Testament and the New that believed God's promises. How was Abraham justified? Was he justified because he was a Jew? Because he was given promises or because he followed the law? No, he was justified because he had faith. He had faith that God's promises are true. Likewise, that is true for you. You have faith that God's promises are true. You know that the Messiah was given for the redemption of our sins. You have faith that God's promised Messiah is your only hope of salvation. That is faith. And when you have faith in God's Messiah and God's Messiah alone, you are children of the promise. There is one path of salvation, and that is God's promises. There is one path, and that is God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so that accusation, I will say, that, that, that Paul was being given, that, that Gentiles were replacing Israel, that criticism extends to this very day. That, that is an argument that is extended to this very day. And let me be clear. And there, there's a term that's used, and it's called replacement theology. And it's, it's suggesting that believing Gentiles are now replacing Jews as heirs of the promise. Let me be clear. Nothing could be further from the truth. The church replaces nothing. It replaces nothing. There is no believing Jew that will be withheld any of the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from any Gentile believing or otherwise. There are no promises that will be withheld from God's people who are identified by faith. None. And Gentiles will not replace it. It's not replacement. It's inclusion. And the inclusion of the Gentiles makes God look glorious because it proves that God's promises from the very beginning were true. God made Abraham a father of many nations. It didn't look like that would happen from the very beginning, but it did. And the vision in Revelation is showing this is that. God's promises are true. Look. 
It has gone from the tribes of Israel all the way now to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. People of God, rejoice. God's promises are true. You can trust Him in tribulation because His promises are true. The rest of the chapter here in chapter 7 is all about promise fulfillment. There are constant callbacks to Old Testament promises. So there's a song that he sings. Uh, Verse 10, uh, what were they doing? They were worshiping. Just like in chapter 14, the group of the 144,000 engaged in worship. Verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This, by the way, is the song from Revelation 14 that no one else could learn. Why? Why why could no one else sing a song of salvation? Because angels aren't redeemed. But you are. You can sing of God's salvation. You are an heir of the promise. You are co-heirs with Christ to the kingdom, but angels are not. You are able to worship God on the basis of salvation. That is a glorious truth. That is something that you are going to be doing for an eternity. And you and only you can do that because you are a recipient of God's salvation. And the angels that are gathered around the throne have a response. All the angels, verse 11, were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. I think we're going to do the same. And they had a sevenfold response. Verse 12 is saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. A list of seven. The seven perfect attributes of God speaking to the perfection of God. God is perfect. God is glorious. And they have a sevenfold praise and refrain regarding the salvation that God brings to his people. It is glorious view of heaven and what is going to take place prior on earth, and now a vision of heaven. And an interesting thing happens. Verse 13, one of the elders comes up to him and says, who are these clothed in white robes and from where they come? It's kind of an interesting thing. One of the 24 elders comes up from him and his response is, sir, you know. Or, or in other words, uh, if you don't know, I don't know. <laughs> you, you better tell me. And so he does tell me a very helpful um, a description. He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, the great tribulation. Again, the tribulation, it is not some small period of time somewhere off in the future. It is describing the entirety of the experience that the church is going through until Christ returns, until the day of the Lord when he fixes all things. And that day of the Lord is a comfort to his people that he is going to make all of this right. And interestingly, there's the blood of the lamb. They're getting their clothes white in the blood of the lamb. Through the work, the person and work of Jesus, are they made right? Are they made clear? It's an interesting word picture about the idea of, of, of getting your clothes white by dipping it in blood. Uh, but it's a word picture about the salvation of the Lamb. And just in closing, uh, let me close the loop here. There, there is a glorifying refrain here uh, about the Lamb and what God is going to do for his people in heaven and what that means for the promises. Every single thing here in verses 15 through 17 is lifted directly from the Old Testament. And it is referring specifically about prophecies about the restoration of Israel. And he's saying, this is that. The completion of God's people in heaven are proof that God is honoring his promises. Uh, Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. Speaking of priestly functions. and, And when it says serving, what it's speaking of is serving as a priesthood day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. This is specifically referring to a tabernacling from Ezekiel 37 verses 26 to 28, to shelter, to tabernacle. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Likewise, 
Um, later on in this list, verse 16 and 17, uh, listed directly from Isaiah, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor, nor any scorching heat. Uh, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. This is directly from Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 25. Isaiah 49 is specifically, again, about the restoration of Israel. Isaiah 49.10, they shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Isaiah 25, 8 and 9, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, and the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So here we have an image of the lamb, the glorious lamb on the throne, and that is the indelible image of Revelation. The lamb that is the object of our worship, the lamb that was slain, has accomplished it. And the lamb, in contrast, that everyone is hiding from in chapter 6 from the wrath of the lamb, is now the shepherd. The lamb has become the shepherd and he will shepherd his people in fulfillment of all promises of land promises and and promises and blessings into the new heavens and the new earth. He will guide his people there in fulfillment of all promises. Now, what do we do with this? I know we're going a little bit long, so let let me just close the loop here. What do we take away from this? What does this mean to us? This, this may be speaking about uh, groups uh, far into the future, small ethereal groups, and I'll say no. It's not talking about groups that have no relevance to you. This is talking about you in tribulation and that you can have faith in God that his promises are true. And this is not to say when we are being protected, that is not to say that you will not face trials and tribulation. You will face trials and tribulation. That's a promise. Uh, you will not be removed from that. But when you do, remember, have faith. Jesus is worth it. He is worth the tribulation that you are seeing on a day-to-day basis. Have faith. Patiently endure. How should we be thinking about this as a people? I see this as a visual representation of Romans chapter 8 for us believers. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37, no. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God if you are sealed in his son's name, Jesus. Finally, just remember the the image of worship. What are we going to be doing forever? We are going to be worshiping around the throne forever and ever and giving him praise for the salvation that the lamb has accomplished. But let me tell you something. You don't have to wait until heaven to do that. You can do that today. In fact, we'll do it right now. Let me close in prayer. Father, I I thank you for your work. I thank you for what you have done. And I pray that we could be reminded of the glorious truth of your salvation, that this is about you. It's very easy to be distracted by details, to be seduced away from, from things that would vie for our affection. But Lord, it's about you. I pray that your son would be glorified. That the lamb who was slain slain would receive his reward. And it would be a very large reward. We pray for the day when all of the worshipers that you have chosen are gathered. And we look forward to that day when you are going to make all this right. Until that day, we patiently endure. Until that day, we worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray.